With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, everybody. This is Chris Malanfi, host of Hit Parade, Slate's podcast of pop chart history. Welcome to The Bridge. That's Diamonds by legendary trumpet player and music mogul Herb Alpert, a number one R&B, number five pop hit from 1987. And as you can hear, Diamonds featured vocals by the hottest artist on Albert's label at the time, Ms. Janet Jackson. This single, which was recorded right after Janet's breakthrough album, Control, served as a bridge in her career between that album and her 1989 blockbuster, Rhythm Nation. It also provided, not incidentally, a bridge for Herb Alpert back to the top of the charts. And these mini-episodes bridge our full-length monthly episodes, give us a chance to catch up with listeners, and enjoy some Hit Parade trivia. This month, I'm delighted to welcome a guest who's not only a friend to Hit Parade, but an alumna here at Slate. Aisha Harris writes and edits for the New York Times. The newspaper just recently named Aisha their culture editor for the opinion section. Aisha's always smart and on-point writing spans TV, movies, and, of course, music. In her time with Slate through 2018, Aisha led the stellar podcast Represent, and she is still a frequent guest on various Slate podcasts. And this is her first time on Hit Parade. Aisha, welcome to The Bridge. Thank you. And I guess I should start by asking about your own Janet fandom. Are you a longtime fan? I'm definitely a longtime fan. I'm 31, so um, I was actually only a very small tot when Rhythm Nation was released. Sure. Um, but I can, as far back as I can remember, my household was filled with like Jackson 5, Michael Jackson, and Michael Jackson was like my thing. I was mm-hmm. obsessed with him for, you know, the first five, six, seven, eight years of my life. And then Janet was never really, I knew she existed, but she wasn't played that much in my household um, until my mom got, uh, she bought the Design of a Decade CD. Yep. The one thing missing was you. And so that was my introduction was that album. So like I knew, I didn't know like which album it was on, the original albums they were on, that it was a compilation CD. Um, it featured like a couple of new songs, but it was mostly her old hits. And I remember listening to that all the time. And then Velvet Rope came and my mom would play that in the car all the time, even though I probably shouldn't have been listening to it. Although most of it went over my head at that time. <laughs> yeah. It's a somewhat raunchy album, but then Janet in the 90s kind of got into her her raunchy phase. Yeah. So I came into it. I don't think it became like a true hardcore fan, though, until I was around 12 or 13 when the All For You album came out. And I actually saw her on tour. My mom took me to see her for the All For You um, tour. That was my eighth grade graduation gift. Um, And it was amazing. She was awesome. Uh, I loved it. And I've been like, I can say I've I've been a hardcore fan of hers ever since. That's awesome. 
did the hits from the 80s sort of sound dated to you in a certain way? Did they sound different from the Janet that you were getting into in the 90s and early aughts? Yeah, I mean, it definitely sounded different um, because I think around that time also, I remember That's the Way Love Goes being like the song that was played all the time, like we'd hear it all the time on the radio. And it did sound very different. And I think the one song that I latched on, especially on that album, um, onto was Pleasure Principle. Mm -hmm. And it's still probably like my top three of all of Janet's songs. Mine too. It's it's just so great. Did you then, let's segue into what this specific Hit Parade episode was about. Did you then at some point go back and play Rhythm Nation as an album? And when would that have happened? Yeah, I don't think that really happened until like, honestly, until like maybe six or seven years ago when Spotify became a thing. I didn't know... State of the World was new to me. Um, uh, all of the interludes were new to me. There were some songs that like I was aware of, but um, yeah, I was like I was a late bloomer to like the full uh, Janet album. Out of the hits on Rhythm Nation, which would you say stands out the most for you today, thirty years later? Um, for me, All Right just feels like uh, like it's just musically it is everything I want in a song. Sure. It's um, it's super catchy, and I also think of the music video for that as well. Um, just because, she, like you mentioned in the episode, she features all of these old Hollywood acts, these black Hollywood Hollywood acts, um, mm-hmm. and, and also the Cerise shows up, um, the the Nicholas Brothers. Like it's just like such a fun, wacky, zany video, um, and it shows Janet kind of like she. She could be sexy, but she could also be sort of masculine and like embrace like a more masculine dance and and style and look. She had like the giant oversized zoot suit. Right. I loved it. Um, I also love Black Cat. I, I think that was one of the songs off of Design of a Decade that like I really gravitated toward. Um, just because I, I th- it like doesn't sound like her, like you said in the right. episode. Like she's using a very different register of her voice, and it's just super kind of in the same way that like Michael did beat it, and then would later do like Dirty Diana. Like I just love it when Janet goes like super rock, and it's fun. That's awesome. I I have two thoughts about Black Hat. One that. I feel like Janet was anticipating things like Free Your Mind by En Vogue, which happened about yeah. three years later. And the other thought I had about Black Cat is that I remember when Black Cat was the, again, sixth single from the album. So this is now late 1990. And by then... You know, there were all these hair metal acts. I mean, they were already around by 1989, obviously. But I remember watching an interview with Janet on MTV at the time, and she was talking about how she really loved uh, the Motley Crue song, Dr. Feelgood. Now, Dr. Feelgood could not have been an influence on Black Cat because 
as I point out in the episode, Dr. Feelgood was one of the singles that came out the same week as Miss You Much, like at the beginning of the cycle of, uh, of uh, album release uh, for Rhythm Nation. Um, but you can really hear a lot of, you know, Motley Crue or, I don't know, uh, Whitesnake attitude in the way Janet's doing it. It isn't just a rock song. She's really taking on a metal vocal in that song. And, and yeah, to your point, it's just, it's a unique voice for her. I can imagine that coming out of a Greatest Hits album that sounds like a lot of different things, that that would really stand out. Yeah, yeah. So this was Janet's socially conscious album. I wonder whether the socially conscious aspects of Rhythm Nation um, hit you as corny or, you know, earnest or you know, forward looking um, with 30 years perspective? You know, I, for me, it's a very high bar when it comes to socially conscious pop music. <laughs> um, Fair. Like there are very few, like, you know, the obvious, it's, it's very obvious, but the one that I think is probably the best version of that type of album is Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. Talk to me so you can see I just sure. think it's it's uh, sonically gorgeous and inventive and different while not feeling too preachy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I th- what helps the album not feel um, not feel too corny or cheesy is the fact that, like, yes, half of the album is socially conscious. But then in the middle of it, she goes, OK, now time to dance. Get the point. Good. Let's dance. And then it turns into like right. moves into the all rights, the level never do, and then like lonely at the end and come back to me. Like so, I think it helps that it balances itself out. Uh, sometimes it can feel a little, a little treacly, but I don't care. <laughs> so this episode was also, frankly, an excuse for me to talk about a pair of producers I've been a little obsessed with since I was a teenager: Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. Um, I think they're uh, brilliant record makers and i kind of love the the team up between them and janet i feel like they all brought the best out of each other um and they've said as much in multiple interviews you know uh the fact that janet has worked with them as long as she has and on so many albums um and to give them credit it isn't as if each album sounds like the others you know you came up with janet in the 90s um when you know jimmy and terry were creating a more lush sound for her. Oh, definitely. Um, The other thing I was really surprised about in listening to your episode was you talked about, and I forget what you called it, the the raindrop or the... I call it their wet sound. The wet sound, yes. Which is not the most, you know, pleasant way to describe it, but yeah. it's the most accurate way <laughs> I can describe it. Yes. Um, but, like, I had never made the connection between those and didn't realize that they were all the same basically the same so were they actually sampling themselves on this different song so there is come back to me on that album which like is one of i think hands down janet's best ballads totally agreed my favorite ballad by her yeah so there's that but then that song sounds a lot like um human by the human human by human league And then also sounds like Tender Love by Force and Dees. Tender love, I'm waiting for the right. 
It also sounds like Can You Stand the Rain by a New Edition. Which I had never put together. Do, were they all, I wasn't clear, were they all the same exact sample or did they like, were they just kind of working, reworking this from the same like? They were reworking the same template. And yeah. the, I, I've, I've checked with a couple of musicologist friends and the chord progression is not identical in each song, but it's very, very close. They're, they're using a similar uh, bass chord in all four of those hits. As I said, the Force MD song dates back to 85. It becomes a hit in 86. Next comes the Human League's Human. Um, the New Edition song is 88. That's on their Heartbreak album. And then Janet comes next. By the way, bonus cut for those who are listening. I didn't want to ruin the timeline in the full-length episode, but there's a fifth one. They did it again in 1994. The Boys to Men song on Bended Knee what? Wait, is, is the same thing again. And also, I want to state this for the record. If anybody thought I was throwing shade at Jimmy and Terry with that section, that was pure admiration. As far as I'm concerned, they, to answer and to answer your question, they were taking a really sturdy song template and tweaking it and making it sound genuinely different five times and getting five hits out of it. They're all good songs. I like all five of them. Um, and between their choice of instrumentation, their choice of arrangements, some of the chord changes that they make, I would say the new edition record, Can You Stand the Rain, has the most tweaks in the formula. Um, they managed to get very different feeling songs out of the same template uh, multiple times. And they don't do it on all their hits, but like maybe one hit per album, they're like, right, this one's going to sound like raindrops. This is the wet sound. And, yeah, and yeah. they just recreate it over and over again. And it, it works every time. If you had come up with that template, you would use it every time too. I guess we can finish up with something about where Janet fits in the modern pop pantheon. I mean, does this music from 30 years ago or the music of control, does it feel relevant today? Does it feel dated in a good sense? Do you hear it in other music? Oh, I mean, it still feels incredibly relevant. And even without you, I feel like any person, younger person could listen to it today and not even realize the sort of backstory of Janet. You know, Control was all about her sort of establishing herself uh, away from her brothers, away from her father. Um, but like even without that, like on its own, it still holds up. And I mean, one point to make is that it just appeared at the very beginning of Hustlers, the the um, the new movie. The song Control is it opens that that movie. And so um, and the movie closes with Miss You Much. Yes. So, I mean, she's still absolutely relevant. And just even looking at someone like Normani, Normani's um, a former member of Fifth Harmony, and she's now solo. Um, her new song, Motivation, or newish song, Motivation, in that video, it's just her dancing the entire time in different settings. And the way the video is set up is that she's kind of hearkening back to, you know, 10, 12, 15 years ago when BOT, BET's 106 in Park was a big thing. And she was watching artists like Sierra and like J-Lo and, and all of them in their dancing and moves were also inspired by Janet. So when you when you put it all together, it's kind of like this just long tale of Janet inspiring um, not just one generation, but like now two, three generations that have come after her. 
I got a huge pleasure principle vibe from that Normani video. Um, crossed with All Right, you know, it's got a cast of dozens similar to the All Right video. It's out on a street. Um, so is Normani directly, to your point, echoing moves that, you know, Janet came up with, some of which may have been choreographed by Paul Abdul? Let's give her her props. Ah, yes. Not necessarily, but I love the idea you're proffering here that, that there's a lineage of this synthesis of R&B and hip-hop, that style of dance being passed on through generations of pop acts. I, I absolutely see that in, in something like that Normani video. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No so now it's the time in Hit Parade the Bridge where we do some trivia. And joining us from New Jersey is Will. Will, are you there? I'm here, Chris. How are you? I'm great, Will. How are you? So far, so good. Ready for some trivia. Fantastic. Um, so you're joining us after the uh, Janet Jackson episode. Were you a fan of Janet uh, going into the episode? I'll be honest. Uh, she, I didn't listen to a lot of her before, but uh, once I heard the, al the album as you described it, I really had to get into it and I was, really liked what I heard. Fantastic. Can I also ask you, Will, are you a Slate Plus member? I am. I joined about two years ago. Uh, for the political gab fest. And I, I, once I saw all the other shows that I could listen to, I really started listening to a lot of the, the stable. That's uh, a great moment for me to remind our listeners that while this bridge episode is available to all hit parade subscribers, we only open our trivia rounds to slate plus members. So if you are a member and would like to be a trivia contestant, visit slate.com slash hit parade, sign up that's slate.com slash hit parade, sign up. So, Will, I'm sure you've listened to previous Bridge episodes and you know how this works, but briefly, for those who are new to it, I'm going to ask you three trivia questions. The first will be a callback to our most recent full-length episode, and the next two are going to be a preview of our next full-length episode. Are you ready for some trivia? I'm ready. All right, here we go. Question one. Last month, our Janet Jackson episode talked about her hits from 1989's Rhythm Nation, but also her breakthrough on 1986's Control album. Which of these Control singles was not among its five top five hits on the Hot 100? A. What Have You Done For Me Lately? B. Nasty? C. Let's Wait A While? Or D. The Pleasure Principle? I think that was D. The Pleasure Principle. And that is correct. The correct answer is the pleasure principle. 
The sixth single from Control did top the R&B and club play charts, but it missed the top 10 on the Hot 100, peaking at number 14. The other three choices here were all top five hits, plus When I Think of You and Control. Um, while I've got Aisha here, we were just talking about how much we both love The Pleasure Principle. It's a little disappointing that it was not one of the big hits from that album, right? Yeah. I mean, I would have thought Let's Wait a While would have been the the one that was kind of on the outside. Yeah, yeah. Let's Wait a While just kind of filled that ballad slot. So, you know, I guess uh, in the 80s, uh, it was always a safe bet to go with a ballad. Uh, you know, when you were a couple of singles deep on an album. But anyway, Will, uh, that was correct. You're one for three. Are you ready for some more trivia? I'm ready. I think I may have peaked it with one. Let's see if we can go for three. All right, here we go. Good luck. (laughs) Question two. Which of these British bands, all leading lights of the 80s post-punk and alternative rock movements, was the first to score a U.S. top 40 pop hit? A. The Cure. B, Depeche Mode, C, The Smiths, or D, New Order? Was that The Cure? I'm sorry, the correct answer was B, Depeche Mode. They reached number 13 in the summer of 1985 with their danceable single Against Racism and War, People Are People. It would be another five years before Depeche Mode would reach the top 40 on the Hot 100 again. All right. What's our third question? Maybe I can redeem myself. All right. Here we go. Question three. The choices are the same, but the question is different. Which of these four dark post-punk bands peaked highest on the Hot 100, scoring a number two hit in October of 1989 with a single that, by the way, was held out of number one by Janet Jackson's Miss You Much? A. The Cure. B. Depeche Mode. C. The Smiths. Or D. New Order. I'm going to go with New Order for this one. You should have gone with your original answer because the correct answer is The Cure. Their goth ballad, Love Song, hit number two on the Hot 100 the week ending October 21st, 1989, kept from number one by Jackson's Miss You Much. For the record, Depeche Mode reached the top 10 a year later with Enjoy the Silence. In their career, New Order scored just two U.S. Top 40 hits, and the Smiths never reached the U.S. Top 40. All right. Well, as you predicted, the easiest question was the first question, and uh, you had a rough go with uh, our preview questions. But uh, I understand that uh, you have a question for me, and we can now turn the tables and let you ask me a question. Yeah. Are you ready? I'm as ready as I'll ever be. All right. While some British post-punk bands didn't make it out of the 20th century in one piece, The Cure and Depeche Mode both continued releasing studio albums well into the 2000s. Of the two, which enjoyed a better position on the Billboard 200 album chart in the 21st century, and with which album? A. Depeche Mode, Sounds of the Universe. B. Depeche Mode, Spirit. C. The Cure's Self-Titled. Or D. The Cure, Bloodflowers. Um... My memory was that the self-titled Cure album from 2004 did especially well, so I'm going to go with The Cure's The Cure album. The answer is actually A, Depeche Mode with Sounds of the Universe. It peaked at number three on the album chart in 2009. Spirit, the second place choice, hit number five as recently as 2017. The Cure's best release post-2000 
is their 2004 self-titled album, which peaked at number seven. Well, all right. So it was a top 10 album, but it did not beat those Depeche Mode albums. I, I should have guessed that. So we defeated each other with questions about Depeche Mode and The Cure. So go figure, Will. We'll call it a tie. All right. I just want to thank you, Will, for joining us on Hit Parade. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. So, as you can probably all tell from our trivia round, in our next episode of Hit Parade, we're actually going to focus again on the year 1989, except rather than talking about Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation, we're going to talk about a band that she prevented from going to number one on the Hot 100. That would be The Cure, as well as the bands Depeche Mode, The Smiths, and New Order. And 1989 was not only the year of Rhythm Nation, it was arguably the year goth broke on the U.S. charts. Now, not all of these bands are goth, but all of them offered dark, gloomy, and sharp-edged British rock that was inspired by punk and post-punk music. I'm also thinking of bands like Susie and the Banshees, Bauhaus, and their descendant band Love and Rockets. The launch of Billboard's Modern Rock chart the year before in 1988 provided a feedback loop for British alt-rock of the post-punk era. And eventually, these bands were actually scoring on the pop charts. So we're going to talk about the moment that these bands crossed over and became not only big bands on alternative radio, but even on pop radio. So Aisha, I can't thank you enough for joining us for Hit Parade the Bridge. And where can folks read more of your fine work at The New York Times? Uh, you can find me at The New York Times. And you can also follow me on Twitter at Crafting My Style. And thank you for having me, Chris. This is one of my favorite podcasts, I tell everyone. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a guest. Uh, it's great. And I'm glad that I got a chance to talk to you about Janet. My huge thanks again to Aisha Harris for joining me for this episode of The Bridge. And by the way, a brief note, if you're listening to this episode on Friday, October 11th, and you'll be in the Boston area, I'll be speaking this afternoon at the Sound Education 2019 Conference for podcasters and audio educators. My panel, Music Matters, will be at 1.40 p.m. at Boston University's Center for English Language and Orientation Programs. And I'll be joined by some excellent co-panelists like Cole Kuchna of Dissect and Indra Viscontis of Cadence. You can buy tickets to the panel or the whole conference at soundeducation.fm. This episode of Hit Parade the Bridge was produced by Asha Saluja. And I'm Chris Melanthi. Keep on marching on the one. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. 
It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs>